Good morning. It is good to be here. It's good to be worshipping. Thank you to Katie and the band for leading us in our time of worship. Um, if you've got any children with you that are going out to groups, then please feel free to, to take them out. I see the balcony has just been almost completely emptied, um, which isn't unusual when I stand up to preach, but at least this time there's a valid reason, so that's reassuring. But it's, it's great to have the children in for worship at the start of the service, and it's great that they're now going to go off and receive their own teaching this morning. So, I want to say um, thank you to Kevin for starting the new series last week and doing a, a great job of introducing this, this series that Katie's just alluded to, um, Minor Character, Major Impact. And the reason that we're doing this is because, um, I don't know about you, but I love it when I'm reading scripture and I suddenly come across a story or a character or a set of circumstances that I've never noticed before. And... We're not always very good. We don't like sort of saying, do you know what? I've never read that before. Because we can, we can make the mistake of thinking, well, I've been a Christian for however many years. I'm, I, people would expect me to know the entire Bible. I should be able to recite most of it. I can't, I can't go around saying there's bits I've never heard of before. So I, I love Katie's humility for just saying it's a character I didn't really know. I'm sure she's not alone. Well, I know you're not alone in that because I was, I was like that just a few weeks ago. I suddenly read, um, read Joshua and it jumped out at me and I thought, I I've never really focused on this character, Arkan. Now, before we go into the whole story this morning, um, did anybody here as a child read um, any of the, the Rupert stories, Rupert Bear? Yeah, there's a, a few hands up. Well, um, <clears throat> If you did, then you might remember that the Rupert stories, when he had a, had a book, it was full of pictures. There was normally a grid of four pictures on each page, and under each one was a rhyming couplet, which basically summed up what was, what was going on in the story at that point. And you could read these rhyming couplets, and they would just about give enough for a, probably about a ten-minute bedtime story. At the bottom of each page, you had two paragraphs, which gave a more detailed version of the story. And that probably was about a 25-minute bedtime story. There are similarities sometimes between Scripture and Rupert Bear. That's not a phrase you'll hear very often. But in this, in this passage, um, verse 1, so we're, we're in Joshua chapter 7, and... Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, basically, it's not a rhyming couplet, but it basically gives us exactly what happens, just in one verse. So we've just had in chapter 6 the story of the fall of Jericho. The Israelites have been instructed by God to do laps of the city of Jericho, making as much noise as they can, and eventually this seemingly impenetrable fortress has crumbled and the Israelites have gone in and they've left no one and nothing standing. They've, they've, they've ransacked the place and they've claimed a crushing victory that has sent a strong message out to all of their enemies across the entire region. Don't mess with the God of Israel. And they're on a high. And then if you, can't, if you don't have time or if you want to get an early night, you don't need to read the whole of verse seven because, uh, sorry, chapter 7 because in verse 1 it says this. But the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. Archan, son of Carmi, son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. That's a summary of what we're going to be looking at this morning. But... 
there is so much more in this passage in this chapter there is so much more for us to get out of it so we're not going to stick with just that one verse i'm not going to say right that's us done instead we're going to delve into the full narrative we're going to go for the the full story have the 25 minute bedtime story that hopefully you won't be asleep by the end of it you see the book of joshua has a, a, a theme that runs through it can i just do a quick straw poll is there a phrase or verse that jumps out to your jumps to your mind when I say the book of Joshua? Okay, can is, a, is what's the phrase? Be strong. Yep. Be courageous. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So often we say, "Be bold and courageous. Do not be afraid," and we see, "Be strong." All these, these, these phrases repeated throughout the book of Joshua. Because the book of Joshua, the overriding theme is one of obedience. If we are obedient to the call of God, no matter how great and how terrifying the task ahead of us appears, if we are obedient to God's calling, then success will be waiting for us. But there's another message, isn't there? There's a flip side, which is if we're disobedient, if we allow our, our, our fear to, to get the better of us, then we will find ourselves experiencing failure and suffering. And that's the overriding theme, the overriding message that keeps getting repeated time and time again throughout the story of Joshua. But of course, this morning we're, we're talking about Archon, this minor character which a lot of us probably have never heard of or certainly have never really studied. But before we get to Archon, we need to go through the first chunk of chapter 7. Because we can learn so, so much about what happens to Archon later on. So we're told that having just ransacked the city of Jericho, having, having been obedient to God and seen the walls crumble, been able to storm the city and leave no man, woman, child, horse, cow, pig, anything standing, having plundered the city, this massive victory, the Israelites are on a high. They're on a high because they've got God on their side. There is nothing that they need to fear. Just about 30 miles away from Jericho is a town. We think it was a town. It might have been um, more like a, a, a series of farms. It, it was a small community called Ai, A-I. And... In fact, we're not even sure what it was called because that word in Hebrew means the ruin. So this may have been a very, very ancient fortified town. It might not have been, but it was kind of a derogatory name. This isn't, this isn't the proper name of this place. It's called this in scripture to give us an idea. This was a weak um, outlying outpost, which was simply a few miles away from Jericho. But there was about 30,000 people living there. It was, it, was a, it was a good size, it was a good size, but it wasn't a powerful uh, military strategic position. But it was still important that the Israelites carry on their conquest. So Joshua 
sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Bethaven, to the east of Bethel, and told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. Now, we notice something here straight away. Joshua's using the same tactics, isn't he? Send spies out. It worked before, it will work again. But there's one key difference. Everything that Joshua's done so far has started with him consulting God. Everything that he's, he's done so far, we see that God gives him clear instruction as to how he should go about tackling the task that faces him. But here, verse 2, now Joshua sent men from Jericho. God's not even mentioned. In fact, God's not mentioned in this chapter until everything goes belly up. So the spies go out and they do their job. And when they return to Joshua, they say, we don't have to send everyone up there. This is not going to take a full army. Give, them, give, give most of the army a bit of a break. Give them a holiday, a bit of rest. Now, the reason for this is partly because they've just had a great conquest. They've been out on a, on a, a, a big um, military campaign and they've had success and they were all revved up for Jericho. That's happened. And like often happens after a massive triumph, suddenly the fatigue kicks in. And you think, man, I need to get away for a bit. I need a break. And the spies say to Joshua, you don't need to send the entire army. Give them a break. Now, the, reason, the, the other reason for this is that Jericho <coughs> is quite a, was quite a low-lying city. It was um, around 800 feet below sea level. So it was, it, was in a, it was in a valley in low-lying land, and they were um, suddenly faced with going up quite a climb. In fact, the ruin, I... As we, as we know it, was two, two and a half thousand feet above sea level. So to get up to this place, they had a climb of 3,000, just over 3,000 feet to get up there before they'd even encountered um, any troops that might be there. And so when the spies come back, they say, look, don't send everyone. They're going to be shattered. It's a, it's a big journey. It's a big climb. This is, this is, this is not going to be a good use of our resources. <laughs> and so... Joshua sends about 3,000 men. They're expecting a bit of a walk in the park. They're expecting to be facing farmers with a few pickaxes, perhaps, and not particularly stiff opposition. (laughs) They're having a lot more fun, aren't they? (laughs) Brilliant. And so these 3,000 men go up there expecting a walk in the park, but they are routed. They are chased back down that hill. And on the way back down, 36 of the Israelite soldiers are killed. Now, you might think, well, that's, you know, 3,000 went up there, 36 died. It's a military campaign. That's not that bad. But that's 36 people. That's 36 lives that weren't expected to be lost that were lost. And this is humiliating. This is really humiliating because they they come back, they flee, they retreat, surrendered, and and come back into the Israelite camp and say, there was loads of them, we were beaten, we couldn't do it. What? But we're this all-conquering army, look at Jericho, what's going on? And Joshua suddenly realises the key element that was missing. He hasn't consulted God. Before we set out and do anything in life, no matter how big or small, if we pray about it and bring it before God, then listen to God. 
then we can go into the situation knowing that God is with us. Sometimes we'll, we'll pray and sort of say, Lord, I'm, I'm about to make this, this life-changing decision. And then there'll be all sorts of um, people talking us down, saying, no, don't, don't do that. Oh, I wouldn't. have you thought about this? What about that? And through, these, through, these, um, through these, these signs, we suddenly begin to question our own decision. And then we start to reassess. And then maybe we do think, hmm, okay, maybe, not, maybe that's not quite right. Or we might be reading scripture and have an overwhelming spiritual sense of, no, don't do it. But if we don't give God the chance to speak into our situation, then we're never going to hear from him. If we're not listening, we're not going to hear. We go in blind, and that's never going to end well. And sure enough, it didn't end well for Joshua. This was a crushing, crushing defeat. So much so that Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there until evening. So he spends a whole day just laying before the ark of God, the ark of the covenant, praying and repenting and asking God what's going on. This is is a state of confusion. He's saying, God, just just a short while ago, we crushed Jericho. And now we can't even take on this farming community at the top of a hill. What's going on? Why? He says, Sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring these people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we'd been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Lord, what can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? It's similar to that passage in in Numbers 14, where we see the Israelites having just been brought out of Egypt. And then they look around and say, well, there's nothing really to eat. I'm sick of this manna. I know it comes every night and it's fresh bread and everything, but come on. What about the meat and the cucumbers and all the the, the good stuff that we used to have back in Egypt? We were much better off then. And they start moaning to God. And then God teaches them a lesson. But it's similar here. Joshua's saying, what was the point of bringing us here, of building up our hopes just to deliver us into the hands? Look, we're surrounded now. All these enemies that we thought we were going to go and take on and, and defeat in battle. And now we look stupid. And we've lost the, the, the element of mystique that we had when we, when we crushed Jericho. People are going to be talking about us being routed by this farming community, by these, these few troops that have humiliated us. God, what are you doing? Seriously. He's terrified. The Canaanites, the other people of the country, will hear about this. They'll surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? Joshua's really angry with God. He's really angry with him. He questions God. Do you know what? That's okay. Because it's because Joshua is, doesn't know what's going on. This is Joshua turning to God. Sometimes when we, when we pray, when we talk to God, we, we calm ourselves down and we, sort of, we don't say what's on our hearts. We don't say, God, why is Dave being such an idiot? Anyone called Dave? I'm not talking about you. Why has he been such an idiot? Why can't he just see this is the right thing to do? Why can't he just grow up? We can have a rant to God. But I don't know about you, whenever I do that, which I do sometimes, I very quickly find myself being reminded of my own failings, my own weaknesses, my own flaws, my own stupidity. I very quickly... I find that by the end of a prayer, 
I'm praying for my own forgiveness. I'm not moaning about anybody else. I'm just thanking God for putting up with a sinner like me. But Joshua here, he has a rant. He has a rant because he cares. Whenever we moan about about church or about what's going on in life, it's because we care. God says to Joshua, get up, stand up. What are you doing on the floor? And then he tells Joshua what's happened. He says, Israel has sinned. This is the first Joshua knows about anything that's happened. And it's the first that that we find out as well, apart from that one um, verse right at the start of the chapter. He says, Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them in their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. As God says says to Joshua... There is a reason. Don't blame me. You need to look at yourself. You need to look at your own people, your own camp. We see here, don't we, corporate sin. Later on in the chapter, we find out that a man named Archon, this minor character that we can so easily gloss over when we read Joshua, was one of the warriors that went into Jericho. He was one who went storming over the, the, the ruined walls, the stones that had, been, that had been laid down flat. He went storming over there, but he didn't follow the clear instruction of God. You see, armies in, in those days, um, troops were paid in one of two ways. Either it was a case of go and plunder the place. Take what you can find, livestock, gold, silver, clothing, whatever it is, take it. It's yours. And every soldier would go in, and it was, it was a mercenary sort of approach. You'd take what you got, and that was, your, that was your wealth. And so everything was taken. The place was stripped. Or the alternative was that it would be more of a corporate campaign. Everything that we take will be brought back to one place. In the case of the Israelites, everything in Jericho was supposed to have been brought before God. So that the Israelites would benefit from it corporately, so that everything was, was brought before God, nothing was taken, so that no Israelite could take, take their own plunder and store it and think, oh, fantastic, I've got rich off this, this is awesome, this is great. Because as soon as we start doing that and keeping our wealth to ourselves and thinking, this is fantastic, we're hiding something. We're putting something in the darkness. The Bible is very clear that whatever is in the darkness needs to be brought out into the light. If we hide something from God, then we're fooling ourselves. We can never hide anything from God. If we hide something, something of God, something serious, something precious from our fellow Christians, it causes a barrier to exist. It causes division to open up. And that's what's happened here. Arkan has taken some devoted things 
precious things from Jericho, things that God has specifically told Joshua must be brought before the ark, must be brought before him. An ark had taken it and buried it in his own tent. But look how God deals with sin. One person has sinned, but for God, it's not about the one person, it's about the people of Israel. He says, Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites can't stand against their enemies. They have turned their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. It's not about the one individual. It's about the corporate body. You see, we talk about the church and we are all members of one body. We all have a part to play. If one of us is hurting, the whole body should hurt. And we should all make sure we do everything that we can to repair that hurt, to make things right, to support and to love and to nourish and to cherish. And we're good at doing that. We really are. So often I'm I'm, I'm really moved when I hear often a a week after, oh, so-and-so had an operation. Oh, really? I didn't know. Oh, don't worry. It's okay. They've had meals. They've had lifts. They've had visits. It's okay. They're looked after. And I'm so grateful to our our pastoral care team who who make those things happen. But I know it, it doesn't need a team necessarily because as a church family, we should be doing that for each other. We should care. We should not have anybody who is isolated and not part of our family who doesn't experience the love. But equally, if one of us is living a, a, a hidden life, then we can be damaging to those around us. If one person goes up to the high street and, and has ten pints and throws up on the pavement and starts a fight, someone's going to say, I know them. I went to a carol service last year and they were on the door at the church. The one on Perry, yeah, Perry Street. And suddenly the entire church suffers. I can see a lot of people smiling and giggling at that. I do hope none of you have done that, but I'll leave that between you and God. But you see, we have to be careful the way we conduct ourselves. We can, we can damage the body of Christ if we don't bring our own sin before God on a regular basis. Confession is not a dirty word. Confession is one of the healthiest things that we can do as Christians. And we don't, as Baptists, we don't believe in priestly confession. I don't need a queue of people coming upstairs and saying, oh, I need to tell you what, I don't want to know all that. That's between the individual and God. That's why Jesus died on the cross, so that we can have the privilege of bringing our sin before God and saying, Father, I've done it again. I've got it wrong. I'm still fallen. But in the name of Jesus, forgive me. And because of what Jesus did on the cross, because of his sacrifice, because of his love for you and for me and for everybody out there in the world, we are forgiven when we go through that process but if we keep our sin buried and hidden it remains in the darkness and that is where evil dwells so meanwhile back at the ranch joshua has gone before god he's had a big old rant at god and god said no 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 no, get up off the floor this is what's happened God's put Joshua in the picture and he says, we need to to weed out the individual. 
Now, Arkwood, at this point, he could, have, he could have confessed at any moment in this whole narrative. He could have come to Joshua, or he could have come to, to the, the elders of Israel who are mentioned in the passage, and he could have confessed his sin. But he doesn't. Instead, there has to be a very public process of finding the culprit. God says, go consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. That which is devoted among you, O Israel, you cannot stand against your enemies until you remove it. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe that the Lord takes will come forward clan by clan. The Lord shall take, sorry, the the clan that the Lord takes shall come forward family by family, and the family that the Lord takes shall come forward man by man. Wow, what a process. Can you imagine there is one person in here that God's not happy with? Right, okay. The balcony, you're okay. You lot, you're okay. Over in, over in the side, over there, yep, you're, it's, it's somewhere in there. Right, okay. It's not this row, it's not the back row, it's somewhere in the middle. Weeding it out. Can you feel, you can almost feel the net closing in around Arkan. You can imagine the terror building up inside him. Oh, no, it's this goal. No, 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 it's, it's going to be me, it's going to be me. What am I going to do? Until finally, finally, we are told the next morning that out of the whole of Israel, Judah, the tribe of Judah was selected. Out of the clans of the tribe of Judah, the Zerahites were selected. Out of the Zerahites come forward the families, and the family of Zimri was taken, and Joshua had his family come forward man by man, and Archon, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, and the tri- of the tribe of Judah was taken. Suddenly, Archon is singled out in front of the whole of Israel. The humiliation, the shame. And now, finally, we see a confession. Joshua says, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give him the praise. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Arkham replies, it's true. I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I've done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia... 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them and took them. They're hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. Finally, he comes clean. But it's too late. It's too late. 36 men are dead because of Arkan. The whole of the tribe of Israel, the whole of Israel and all the other tribes are looking at Archon and his family and his clan and his tribe. He has sullied the, the reputation of everything that he stands for. There could be nothing more shameful than what he's just experienced. And this is another key thing about confession, isn't it? You see, because we don't believe in a a priestly hierarchy, there's no one keeping tabs. You're not going to have me or one of the elders knocking on your door saying, you haven't confessed recently. I think it's probably about time, don't you? We don't work like that. That's not a biblical model. 
But we are all accountable before God. And so we must all make sure that we confess on a regular basis. That we don't wait for things to go wrong. We don't wait for the world to come caving in upon us before we, before we come before God and confess what we've done wrong. Because then it's too late. 36 men are dead. There has been a humiliation of Israel. All because of one man wanting to get rich without God's blessing. So Joshua sends messengers, they go to the tent, they hide what was, they find what was hidden there, they dig it all up and they bring it out and they lay it before the tent where the ark of the Lord is kept. And Joshua, together with all Israel, so again, there's that corporate responsibility, all Israel, took Archon, the son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold wedge, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys and sheep, his tent and all that he had to the valley of Acre. Joshua said, why have you brought trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. The Hebrew word Acre means trouble. Then we get to the gory bit. There's always a gory bit in the Old Testament, isn't there? Then all Israel stoned him. And after they'd stoned the rest, so yes, that's the sons and daughters, and it's the livestock, and it's everything living that belonged to Archon. They burned them. Over Archon, they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Acre ever since. The Valley of Trouble. Because trouble is what the Israelites found themselves in when they weren't straight with God. So this passage, it reminds us of this minor character. But he had a major, major impact because he, he, he highlighted the corporate responsibility of the people of Israel. The corporate responsibility that we as a church still have to one another today. To live lives when we are outside, away from, from the eyes of one another. To still live lives that honour God. To still conduct ourselves in a way that honours God. To make sure that every word that comes out of our mouths honours God. To make sure that we are setting the example of Jesus to those around us that don't yet know Jesus. Because if we don't do that, then we bring trouble on ourselves. At the same time, we must make sure that if we've got issues with one another, that we share them, that we talk to each other, that we follow the biblical model of going to the individual and saying, look, this has really bothered me. Can we talk about it? Not have, a, have an argument, not go outside in a, in a car park and roll up our sleeves. Just sit down. Pray it through. Talk it through. It might be theological issues. There might be massive divisions about certain theological issues. And if we don't talk about our theology, then when a practical situation comes along that requires us to apply our theology, then suddenly as a church, boom, we're split. Because we haven't talked about the things that that worry us. We've kept them hidden. We should be talking about, about the important issues, the hot potatoes. And yes, there'll be division. Yeah, there'll be differing opinions. But we need to know where we stand. We need to share them in a spirit of love and grace. 
A spirit of unity and not of division. You see, Arkan suffered because of the damage that he had done to the whole of his community. When I read this, I was reminded of um, the story of David Ginola. He used to play for Tottenham, Newcastle, a few other teams. He was a French guy, and um, men were wooed by his footballing skills, fantastic player. Women were wooed by his hair, good-looking bloke, apparently. And he, um, he played for France. But he didn't play for France very much, despite being one of the top players of his generation, because there was a, in 1994, there was a World Cup, and you have to qualify for a World Cup to get to the actual tournament proper. And France, in their last qualifying game, needed to get a draw against Bulgaria. And it was 1-1 with about a minute, two minutes to go. And David Ginler had been brought on, um, and he'd been given the instruction, just get the ball and just hold it up in the Bulgarian end so that it's safe, so that we can just grind out this 1-1 draw and get to the World Cup. But Ginola was a flair player. He wasn't the sort of player to just sort of hold the ball right in the corner and block everybody out and, and, you know, boring football. He was a flair player. He wanted to win the game. And so with about a minute to go, he gets the ball and he runs up the left wing and rather than just stopping it and slowing it down and, and trapping the ball and trying to win a free kick and grind out the last few seconds. Instead, he puts a cross in for a French player to try and knock into the net. But the Bulgarians defend it, and they they hoof it straight back up the other end of the pitch. Bulgaria score, win the game. Bulgaria qualify for the World Cup, and France don't. And the French manager, Gerard Houllier, he identified Ginola. He said, Ginola is the reason why France haven't qualified. It is his fault. If he had done what he was told to do, then France would have qualified for that World Cup. And Ginola, um, I'm not sure if he ever played for France again, possibly not, but he certainly, I think he played for about 17 times, which is not a lot for a player of his quality. He was, he was the scapegoat, if you like, for France not qualifying for the World Cup. But Gerard Houllier had a point. If he'd done what he'd been told to do, they would have ground out the 1-1 draw. But he didn't. Instead, he wanted the glory. He was a flair player. Arkham was a, a flair player. He was a warrior. He wanted the plunder. He wanted the wealth. He wanted to build his own fortune. And that led him to ignore the orders he had been clearly given, not by Gerard Houllier, but by God. We must be careful that our own ambition does not cloud our obedience to our godly instruction. Just to finish, I just want to share with you the first two verses of chapter 8. We're told, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid. There it is. Do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you. Go up and attack I. For I've delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city and his land. You shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, except that you may carry off their plunder and livestock for yourselves. If only Archon had had the patience to be obedient to the instruction of God, he would have got 
what his heart desired. He would have got what he wanted, but instead, his impatience, his disobedience, led to death, led to humiliation, and eventually, it led to the destruction of him and everything and everybody associated with him. We have a saviour who came into this world and who died on a cross for us. Jesus means that we can have a relationship with God. Because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, when we confess our sin, we are not condemned in a way that Archon is condemned. We are forgiven because of Jesus. And if we're sitting here today and we don't know Jesus as our personal saviour, then I urge you to know him. Read scripture, speak to Christian friends or family, ask why do I need Jesus? Because God sent Jesus into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. God loves us. He loved Arkan. He loves each and every one of us. And wherever we go in the world this week, we will never find ourselves looking into the eyes of someone that God doesn't love. It's impossible. And so let's make sure that we uphold our end of the bargain, that we love God, that we love our neighbour, and that we love ourselves enough to make sure that when we stand before God in judgment, Jesus washes us clean with his blood. Let's pray. Father God, we confess to you that we are all sinful people. We know that we get things wrong. We know that we let you down and fail you on a regular basis. But Father, we thank you that rather than facing the the condemnation that awaited Arkham, we have the glory and the grace that comes through Jesus. Lord God, thank you for the cross. And thank you, Lord, for this reminder that there is no such thing as a minor character in your church, in your narrative. That you have planned a life and a story and a pathway for each one of us. And that if we are obedient to you, then we will one day have the most glorious riches that we can imagine as we stand in your presence in heaven. Bless us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.